Let's pray. Father, we do plead with you that you would not pass us by. Lord, this psalm speaks of bitterness of soul, and it speaks of one who entered into your presence and found resolution for his difficulties, for a struggle that he was having. And Lord, I pray that you would make it so for those here who might be tempted to cynicism, tempted to think that it's not worth it, tempted to think that the wicked really do get away with it. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would show up through your word and that you would confront us in our ignorance and in this beastliness that we sometimes feel. And I pray that you would drive it out, Lord. I pray that by the power of your spirit, through your word, you would do exactly what this psalmist describes, and you would cause your nearness to be our good, that you would take hold of us by your right hand, and that you would lead us by your counsel and convince us that what we want is for you to be our portion forever. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name, by the power of the spirit, for your glory. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 73, and while you're turning there, I would invite you to consider the evidence that sometimes indicates that the wicked are going to prevail, or that sometimes makes us think, you know, is is that criminal who just keeps cheating and keeps lying and keeps trying to hide what she's done, is she going to continue to get away with this? How long is this going to, is she even going to be elected president? How long is this going to go on? Or maybe you think, really, we're going to elect this guy who's a scoundrel, president of the United States? Are the wicked really going to get away with it? Are they truly and genuinely going to prevail? So there's some for both sides there, isn't there, right? They're both, I think they're equally bad, right? Now, I'm about to do something I don't think I've ever done. Uh, This is like, um, there was a Sunday morning when uh, my brother was at our house, and uh, we were sitting there for breakfast, I think it was, and David said, you know, you could open the sermon with a joke. (laughs) That's not what I'm about to do. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to use a prop. I don't think I've ever used a prop in a sermon before. Here's a prop. This string represents the span of your life. And sometimes it feels, doesn't it, like the whole string is dominated by the wicked, like they get away with it. They're never punished. They seem to have all the fun. They seem like they're the ones who really get to enjoy life. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 73 is dealing with. I would invite you to look at Psalm 73 this morning with me, and we're told... Uh, Right above Psalm 73, if your Bible is like mine, you've got the words book three, and the the Psalms, the 150 books, are divided up into these five sections, and so we're now entering the third section, 
And if you were here two weeks ago, we were in Psalm 72, which um, looks like a prayer of David for his son Solomon. And he's praying, really, that God is going to keep his promises and accomplish all of his purposes and bring to pass everything that God has said he's going to do to remake the world the way he intended it to be when he began to create in the beginning. And I think what, what Psalm 73 is doing is it, it's, it's responding to the ideal situation prayed for in Psalm 72 by saying, okay, all those ideal, ideals, they're crashing up against wicked reality. And, and so Psalm 73 is complaining that things aren't the way the psalmist prayed they would be in Psalm 72. Uh, this psalm is divided into three sections, and as best I can tell, there's not a chiasm here. Um, psalm 73.1 opens with the word truly, and then down in verse 18, if you're looking at the ESV, you've got the word truly there as well, and there's another one of these, uh, one of these words, truly, that's not translated in the ESV, but it's at the start of verse 13. So in my copy of the ESV, out in the margin next to verse 13, I wrote the word truly. They ought to translate it. Uh, I would invite you to do the same. It's there, and that little word, truly, divides this psalm into three sections. In verses 1 through 12, the, the, uh, the righteous psalmist is going to lay out the problem that he has. And the problem that he has is that whereas in Psalm 72, um, David was praying that the king from his line would establish shalom for the people of God, this holistic uh, peace and blessing. The problem is, in Psalm 73, that the wicked have that shalom. So look at, look at Psalm 72, verse 3. David prays, let the mountains bear prosperity. That's the word shalom. And then look at verse 7. Of Psalm 72, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace, that's the word shalom, abound till the moon be no more. And then look at Psalm 73, 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity, shalom, of the wicked. So uh, here in verses 1 through 12, that's what he's going to deal with, the shalom of the wicked. And then starting in verse 13 and continuing through verse 17, he's going to tell us about how he struggled with this reality, how difficult it was for him to, to get his mind around this and to deal with it. And then in verses 18 through 28, he's going to tell us about the solution to that problem. And basically, it comes down to the fact that he becomes convinced that God is going to judge the wicked and save the righteous. So look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 73. The psalmist says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And I think this is almost like, a, at this point in the psalm, this is almost like a reluctant confession. Something like he's saying, yeah, okay, fine. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then look what he does in verse 2. But as for me, in my case, it's like he's accepting himself from God's goodness. Okay, fine, God's good to Israel, but as for me, in my case, and then at the end of the psalm, he's going he's to reuse these same terms. Look at verse 28. 
That could be translated, but as for me, it's the exact same construction that you have in verse 2 when he says, but as for me. But for me, it is good. So you see what's happened. At the beginning, he's saying, okay, fine, sure, sure, truly, God is good to Israel, but as for me, and accepting himself, taking himself out of it. By the end, he's come full circle, and he's ready to say, but as for me, it is good to be near God. So that's, that's the... That's the starting point and the ending point of this psalm. Now, how do we get from one to the other, and what kept him from that at the beginning? Well, he tells us in verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So uh, walking is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for life. And what he's saying is that his feet almost went out from under him. Whether his ankles buckled or his knee was hyperextended, he almost lost his footing altogether. And now he's going to tell us why, verse 3. This is why he almost lost his stand. He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the shalom, the prosperity of the wicked. And I'm sure you've felt this. I'm sure you've, you've, you can identify with this. Because we're all tempted to envy. And we all look around and we all think to ourselves, why is that person experiencing God's blessing? Because that's really what this comes down to. Shalom is a blessing of God. Prosperity is a blessing of God. And the Bible says that it's those who walk with God, those who know God, those who who humble themselves and repent of their sin and, and try to live by the scriptures. They're going to experience the blessing of God. And then we run up against reality and it feels like that person who is totally disregarding God is getting all of God's blessings. And then he, he, he goes on and he describes what, what this felt like. He says there in verse 4, For they have no pangs until death. Their lives are not painful. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now in the ancient world, in the ancient world, if you looked fat, it was evident to everybody that you didn't have to work and that you had no shortage of food. Uh, so this would not be put this way if, he, if the psalmist were writing today. I think some, he would probably say something like, they look so healthy, they look, they look so fit, they look so strong, they, they're, they're, they, they seem so vibrant. And then verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And look down at verse 14 where he says, All the day long I have been stricken. And in verse 14, I think he's, he's talking either about God's disciplining hand of judgment or perhaps the way that he introduces self-discipline to try to restrain his own propensity to evil. Either way, what he seems to be saying is, they're not experiencing God's judgment and God's discipline, nor are they trying to restrain their own excessive desire. They're just taking advantage of life. And then as a result of this, because of the way that they seem to be getting away with all of their indulgence, he says here in verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. The idea is, I mean, you put a necklace on to adorn yourself, right? 
The idea is these people are putting pride on the way that you would put on a necklace. They, they, they're, they're not hiding their pride. They're not even trying to act in a humble way. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Not only are they dressing themselves with pride, they're also dressing themselves with violence. They're, they're, they're not hiding the fact, okay, they're putting this on like a garment for everybody to see. When you look at me, this is what you see. If you cross me, I will crush you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And this is just adorning themselves with boastful pride and threats of violence. Somebody has said if, if hypocrisy is the complement that vice pays to virtue, right, the idea that there's an acceptable way to live, and even people who don't live in that accept, acceptable way, they, they try to act like they are that acceptable way, so they're hypocrites. If hypocrisy is the complement that vice pays to virtue, these people are not bothering with that compliment. These people are, are flaunting social custom and openly exhibiting their pride and then threatening anybody that, that wants to stand against them with destruction. Brutal, physical, violent destruction. Uh, this characterizes people in our society, prominent people in our society, people running for high office in the land. Verse 7 their eyes swell out through fatness. It, it, I, I mean, I don't even... <laughs> the best I can do to make sense of this, I don't know what this means. The best I can do to make sense of this is that the psalmist is describing the haughty bearing of these people. The way that they just looked with contempt at everybody. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Again, I think fatness is this idea that I have everything that I need. I've got my airplane. I've got my towers. And so I'm just going to despise everybody else in creation and think myself to, that I'm so superior to them. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies, meaning uh, the imaginations of their hearts just run wild with these foolish schemes. They scoff, verse 8, and speak with malice. They make fun of people. They don't engage in arguments. They, they simply respond with scorn, and then the evil of malice is what comes out of their mouth, and loftily they threaten oppression. This is another connection back with Psalm 72. Psalm 72.4, at the end of the verse, uh, may he defend the cause of the poor, and then at the end of verse 4, and crush the oppressor. Well, these people, that's never going to happen. These, these people are just threatening oppression. And it's causing the psalmist to think, God's not just. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. So these people, they open their mouths to speak against God. That's what it means that they set their mouths against the heavens. They, they think, I'm going to combat the almighty God with my mouth. And then, because they're so proud and because they're so boastful, th their words, it's as though their tongues are just strutting through the earth. This makes me think of this, this uh, song that, that we got exposed to this summer. Um, uh, Jed played on this baseball team that the coach, he brought out this uh, music box, you know, and he set it up in the batting cage. And um, 
I forget the guy that sings the song. You may know it. But um, this guy, he says, um, in, in the lyrics to this song, he's boasting. He says, I got a really big team, and we need some really nice things. We need some really big rings because I got a really big team. And he just keeps repeating this over and over and over, talking about what a big team he, he has and how important they are and how, how he needs to be paid a lot of money because they need some really big rings to sport. And it's just the, you can look it up. I mean, you know, put it on YouTube, big rings. And then you can just sit there and laugh at this guy that repeats himself over and over and talks about how significant he is. Um, that's what's going on here. Their tongue is just strutting through the earth. And then verse 10. Therefore, his people. I think this reference to his people refers to God's people. Therefore, God's people turn back to them. You see what the psalmist is saying? God's people see this. They see the way these wicked people act. And they, it's like they say, oh, well, they must be okay. They haven't been smashed with God's judgment. They haven't had the, their wicked teeth crushed or broken. So we'll just resort to them. We'll just go along with them. We'll just join their cause. We'll just lower our standards. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. We just won't point out anymore their injustice. We won't object to their violence. We'll just go along with it. We won't say anything negative about them because it might be dangerous to do so. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, this is, these are the wicked. I, I think this might be the most shocking thing about this passage. They say, how can God know? You see what they're saying? I'm so smart. I'm so clever. I'm so adept. How can God know? You know what they're doing? They're daring God to act. I dare you to act. You can't get me. You can't find out what I've done. You can't hold me to account. How can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? He's got nothing on me. This is nothing but contempt for Almighty God. This is nothing but them thinking that they are superior to Him, that they can evade His justice that he can't find out what they've done. He can never know. And then the psalmist says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. They've just got all this luxury. They just keep getting richer and richer. These are the wicked. Free from pain, free from trouble, free from humility, free from judgment, free from discipline, free from the fear of God. These are the wicked. Um, what's the psalmist's problem here in verses 1 through 12? I think his problem goes back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Right? You know those, you know those statements? Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What the psalmist is doing is he's hearing the word of God, which tells him one thing, 
And then he's looking in the, at the world and he's seeing another thing. And he's leaning on his perception. And I would just invite you to consider this morning. Are you leaning on your own understanding or on God's word? Okay, so there's the problem, verses 1 through 12. Now we see a struggle. He's going he's gonna to respond to these things in verses 13 through 17. And, and what we can say about this psalm is that it was obviously written after the psalmist had arrived at the conclusions he's going to articulate at the end. So this is a retrospective on how he was feeling at the time, right? In other words, verse 13 does not reflect his settled conclusion about life. It reflects where he was when he was considering the wicked. And his, his words in, in verse 13 are, Truly, in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, the pursuit of cleansing and innocence involves the de- denial of, of desires for sinful pleasure. It, it involves the mortification of the flesh. It involves ongoing spiritual discipline to keep myself from the allure of evil. And, and the logic of verse 13, it, it reflects his response to the way that the wicked seem to have evaded God's justice. And that, that seems to, to, to drive him to the conclusion that it wasn't worth it. If the wicked are going to get away with it, if God is not going to punish transgressors, then I could have indulged in sinful pleasure with impunity. It was in vain that I tried to keep my heart clean and wash my hands in innocence. And then he goes on to talk about what he endured, verse, verse 14. For all the day long I've been stricken. And, and this striking, again, it, it can either refer to God's disciplining judgment against him or perhaps to self-imposed measures whereby he tried to curb his appetites to keep himself from indulging the way the wicked do. All day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Maybe he had some accountability partners. That morning after morning, he comes and he confesses his sin and they say, you got to stop. You got to stop talking that way. You got to stop thinking that way. You got to stop indulging those thoughts. You got to get right. And he's saying all that was vanity. All that was worthless. And, and you can see the, the, the way the, the thoughts are, are working for him. His, his calculation went like this. I want to experience these temporary pains because I want to have everlasting pleasure. And now, here the wicked are, judgment-free. And so, I could have skipped the temporary pain and gone straight to the sinful pleasure and then gone on enjoying that forever. Because the wicked don't seem to suffer for their sin. So why should I strive for holiness? Why should I punish myself and endure God's discipline? The turning point comes for him at verse 15, where he begins to, he's processing this, you know, he's being very honest, isn't he? Being very honest about what he wanted, how he felt, what what his conclusions were. 
Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The fact that he says those words, that these words inform that word almost back in verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I was right up on the edge and about to go over. But then I thought, if I do that, I'm going to betray the generation of God's children. In other words, all the people of God, everyone who, who agrees with me that God is going to judge, that if we're faithful to him, we'll have greater joy in the long term in, in exchange for this short-term uh, pain, everyone who embraces discipline as the path to that gladness. It's a small step from agreeing with the wicked to joining their side. And that's what he's saying he was about to do. He was, he was on the cusp of, of conceding that they're in the right and then going over against, with the wicked, against the people of God. And then here's, the, here's more of the struggle in verse 16. He's, he's taking us back into the process he says, when I thought to understand, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That word for wearisome task, this word is often used in Ecclesiastes to describe your work in the world. It often feels like a wearisome task. It's frustrating. And, and so the psalmist here is describing the way that he's going round and round in his brain, trying to figure out the discrepancy between the Bible and the world, the way it appears, and it's just driving him nuts. It's a wearisome task, and he's tired of thinking about it, and he can make no progress on it. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And he doesn't tell us what it was about entering into the dwelling place of God that did this for him. Uh, but earlier in the, in the service... Uh, we read how Solomon prayed that God would indwell the temple. First Kings 8 is at the dedication of the temple. So they got the temple built in First Kings 6, 6 and 7. And then in chapter 8, there's this huge worship celebration. And Solomon prays and he says, may the Lord be with us. Meaning, God, may you take up residence in this temple. And then Solomon goes on to pray and incline our hearts to want to obey you. So maybe that's what happened for him. He, he enters into the presence of God, and it's God's presence that has this effect upon him and makes him now want to obey God. I think it could also be the case that uh, because the, 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 the way the temple was constructed, it, it was intended to be perceived as a symbol of the cosmos. And so maybe as he approaches the temple, for him, it would have been for us like looking at a, an atlas of the world or maybe a globe, and he sees this. And this thought process takes over in his mind, the world's true creator will be the world's only judge. So it's certain that the wicked are going to be judged in accordance with God's word. Whatever the case, when the psalmist entered the precincts of the very presence of God, he says there in verse 13, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And he perceived... That appearances are not to be trusted. They will reap in accordance with what they have sown. I may not perceive it, 
but God is going to be just. I think the, the question for us here in 73, 13 through 17 is what he says there in verse 15. Let's go back to that. If I had said, I will speak thus. If I had said, it's not worth it. The wicked have the right idea. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Who are you going to be with? Who are you going to be faithful to? With whom do you identify? Are you identifying with the people of God? Are you identifying with those trying to be faithful, those trying to maintain personal spiritual disciplines? Or are you going to betray that group of people that loves you and that wants you to have everlasting joy? He elaborates on his solution in verses 18 through 28. What he's going to do in verses 18 through 20 is describe the fate of the wicked. And then in verses 21 through 26, he's going to, he's going to do some self-analysis. He's going to describe for us where he was spiritually in verses 21 through 26 when he was struggling with this problem. And then he's going to summarize in verses 27 and 28. The, the end of the wicked and the end of the righteous. So the first thing he says about the wicked in verse 18 should remind us of verse 2. Verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Remember verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. And, and what he means there when he says my feet had almost stumbled, he means my perspective was so corrupted and so mistaken that I was about to agree with the wicked of the world. And I think there's an implication of, had I done so, I would have been in the slippery places with them. Truly, Psalm 73, 18, you set them in slippery places. They are not on solid ground. They do not have a good, firm place to stand. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, he's marveling here how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The wicked are prominent one second, and then bam, they're gone, swept away. You contrast that with the way that the psalmist, he was was up against this precipice, and then he had all this time to work through this issue. All this time to think through it. The the opportunity to consider our choices is a mercy from God. We should seize it. It's that way out that Paul was describing. Take the way out. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will provide a way out. The psalmist has taken the way out. He went up there to the temple. And then... In verse 20, he describes the way that the wicked are are like waking up from a bad dream. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What he's saying is, he's he's describing the way that, you know, you can be having this nightmare that that is so terrifying, that feels so real, that, that maybe you're about to be killed or you're about to be sent to prison or awful things are about and then you wake up and it may take you a second but before long you're back in reality 
And that nightmare is gone. And he's saying, that's what the wicked are like. Recently, one of my children was, uh, came, came into the room in the middle of the night, came into our room in the middle of the night, and she, she, I just revealed her identity. Um, she was just wailing, I mean, totally and completely distraught. What's wrong? I was having a nightmare, you know. She's pitiful, it's pitiful. And, and I scooped her up, and I took her back to her bed, and I prayed for her, and I said, are you going to be okay? She goes, you can go to bed now. <laughs> I mean, she was done with me, you know. She didn't need me anymore. That nightmare was gone. I mean, I thought maybe I was going to be there for a while trying to console her. It was over. The nightmare was over. There was no more remembrance of those things. I want to go to sleep now. Like a dream when one wakes, oh, Lord. When you rouse yourself... You notice the Lord is going to rouse himself against the wicked. You despise them as phantoms. And then the psalmist does, he, he does a, uh, an analysis of his own heart here in, in verses 21 through 26. And, and this is important for us to see. This is another one of those things, you know, so often as people talk about the psalms, I think they overdo it. The psalmist is... He's screaming at God. The psalmist is ready to... I think it's almost like they say the psalmist is ready to renounce the faith. And let's look at what the psalmist actually says, you know? And, and yes, we want to be honest with God. And yes, we want to pray the way the psalmists do. And yes, we want to take the same analysis of ourselves that the psalmist does. Look at what he says in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, the word that he uses there for... One of the words here is actually kidneys. When when my kidneys were pierced, you know, he's having this intellectual problem, this dissonance between what the Bible says and what he sees with his own eyes, and, and it's like he's got this pit in his stomach, you know? He feels it. It's making him sick to his stomach the way that he can't resolve this. Notice he says, when my soul was embittered, bitterness there and it's festering and he feels it but then look at verse 22 I was brutish and ignorant he's not complimenting himself he's indicating I needed to get over that and I think he's going to go on to say he is going to go on to say by God's grace I did get over that and and so the reason I'm, I'm trying to Uh, make a point here. The point I'm trying to make is when we detect bitterness in our souls, cynicism, when we detect these kinds of feelings within ourselves, envy, and and, uh, we need to pray that God would deliver us. We don't need to stay there. And we certainly can't say, well, the psalmist felt it and that that authorizes me to nurse it. No, no. I was brutish and ignorant, he says there in verse 22. I was like a beast toward you. What what he's saying is that he had no comprehension. He had no spiritual sensitivity. No relational connection to God. He was like an untamed animal. And then the, the grammar of the next verse, verse 23, where he starts it, Nevertheless... 
I think this continues his self-reproach because he says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. How do these statements relate to each other? I think what he's saying is something like this. A dog that is always with its master will learn to trust his master. And here I am, Lord, always with you. I should trust you. A, a horse that has the same rider or uh, farmer or whatever that, you know, hitches it up to the plow every day. He'll learn to trust his master. And here I am continually with you. You hold my right hand and I was acting this way. I think this, these are statements of repentance. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Um, the word counsel there, remember Psalm 1, verse 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So rather than the counsel of the wicked, he's got the counsel of the Lord, which was from Psalm 1 is the Bible. Uh, so you guide me with your counsel. And notice how the Lord has intervened. You hold my right hand. You guide me. God is the one, the psalmist learns from the scriptures and from, the, from God's presence. God is the one who makes the rules. God is the one who will enforce the rules. And then look at verse 24. And afterward you will receive me to glory. What he's saying is that these temporary rigors and disciplines that are necessary for walking with God, it's going to lead to everlasting gladness. Glory awaits me in the future because of this being rebuked every morning, because of the way that I'm being stricken all the day long in verse 14. It's worth it, he's saying. And so in this context, verse 25 I think, has a very particular thrust. When he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? In this context, what he's saying is, The God who is continually with me, verse 23. He is the God that I know, and this is the God who's going to judge. There's not some other power in heaven that is going to do justice on the wicked, and there's no one else that the psalmist can look to to reward the faithful. You're all I've got, he's saying. Whom have I in heaven but you? And then the next affirmation is also uh, pregnant with meaning in this context. He says there at the end of verse 25, And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He was tempted, tempted to envy the wicked. Why? He wanted their pleasures. And now he's saying, I don't want anything but you. With you, I have no other desire on earth. I don't want the things that the unrighteous transgress to enjoy. I want God. If I enjoy God, there's nothing else to be desired. God will satisfy my longing for justice leaving nothing to be desired. God will satisfy my longings for pleasure, influence, power, status, anything else for which the wicked corrupt themselves. 
There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, if, if you're thinking to yourself, well, how do I get myself to feel this way? How do I make it so that when I'm in this state of difficulty where I'm envying the wicked, I want their pleasures, what do I do? Verse 26, the psalmist tells us how it worked for him. He says, my flesh and my heart, bodily and spiritually, I think he's saying, may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, I didn't do this for myself. He's saying, in my emptiness, God was full. When I was physically spent and spiritually and mentally exhausted, God was my strength. God was my rock. The psalmist is saying that the resource that held him fast came from outside of him. He didn't produce it. He didn't generate it within himself. He didn't keep himself. He didn't make himself strong. He didn't renew his own heart. He didn't find shelter in his own stability. God was his rock, the rock of his heart, his strength. And when he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, He's claiming that the spiritual satisfaction that he enjoys is not a product of what he does for himself or produces within himself. On the contrary, God is my strength and my portion. What he's saying is that I have actual experiences of the living God that change me. This is what we need. How do we get it? Well, we need to cultivate the spiritual discipline of going to God's word. God's presence is, is mediated through us by the spirit through the word. That's also why we come here. We come here to gather together because the Lord meets us here. And his presence has an altering effect upon us as his word is communicated to us. And you should pray for this. You should pray, God, meet me when I open the Bible. God, meet me when I show up to church. Make me have a real encounter with you, the living God. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm going to revise my, uh, my illustration. Earlier I said, you know, this is the span of your life. We're going to revise that down in light of eternity. And, and we're going to say the span of your life is about this much of this string, right? This much. You know where this is going? The guy that drove me to the airport told me about this. This is going in this direction. If this is the span of my life, I can't throw this thing far enough to indicate how long forever is going to be. These temporary rigors, these temporary sacrifices, so short, so short. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I could start pulling on this string, and it could unwind, and we could get forever until I run out of string, and then we would have infinity into the future. And then 
This is why, verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The language, that, the, the word that's rendered unfaithful there, it's actually um, a word that, that communicates spiritual adultery. You put an end to everyone who plays the whore against you. And that communicates the idea that these people are going to sinful pleasure or to the world or to other things to get what they could have from God in covenant relationship with him. But for me, verse 28, it is good to be near God. Verse 27, those who are far from you. Verse 28, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Maybe you're here this morning and you didn't come in here identifying as a Christian. And uh, maybe you're even thinking to yourself, I don't want to identify as a Christian. I don't want to be persuaded. What we want to say to you is taste and see that the Lord is good. What we want to say to you is consider that little, this little blip of your life in light of eternity future. And there's an offer being made to you as I speak these words for the living God to become the strength of your heart and your portion forever. But what you've got to do is you've got to turn away from your sin and you've got to hope fully and completely and only in Jesus. He, he's the one who's going to bring about all those blessings described in Psalm 72. He's the one who's going to make it so that there's no more discrepancy between what the Word of God promises and what we see with our eyes. And he's the one who gave his life to save us from our sin. And I, I want to go back to this idea of the way the psalmist was delivered here in this psalm. As he worked through this dilemma, dilemma his own logic didn't save him. He didn't find new evidence that saved him. What happened for him is he entered the presence of God. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And that poses a question for us. What are we going to rely on? Are we going to rely on ourselves or are we going to rely on the Lord? Let's pray together. Father, you are the everlasting God. You are the world's only creator. You are the judge. We believe that Christ will come to judge the quick and the dead the living and the dead. And Lord, we believe, we believe that it's worth it to deny ourselves indulgence in things that will ruin our lives, that we might have everlasting gladness in your presence. We believe it right now, Lord. Make it so that we believe it all the time. Make it so that we believe it when we're alone, when we're with friends that might not be exercising good influence on us. Make it so that we believe it in difficult moments at work. Lord, make us people who always live like we know you. And we ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen.